Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are doing a deep dive in the colonial case study of the Belgian Congo. Um, we've been doing a lot of case studies on colonialism. We think it's important to have a discussion on this, especially since increasingly we have been finding that this, what used to be very popular case study that people were well, well aware about, like I said, it even made its way into like a Billy Joel song in the 80s, We Didn't Start the Fire, this very popular case study has fallen off the proverbial radar of big, important 20th century events. So we are here to um, reinvigorate the conversation around it. So without further ado, we're going to dig into the history, starting with the Congo Free State. I do want to start with the disclaimer that um, we do have pages upon pages of research regarding what Congo looked like before the Belgians showed up. Um, but we don't necessarily have time to fit that into this episode. And more importantly, if we did try and go through the entire history of the Congo, which goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years, includes diverse kingdoms and diverse groups and a whole bunch of different linguistic groups and cultures and traditions and rituals and things along those lines, we would actually probably do, be doing a great disservice to it. So we are going to just pick up with the colonial project in the 19th century. So without further ado, I'm going to dig straight in. Um, we're going to pick up with the Belgians in the 1830s. They are a freshly born, newly independent nation state as they freed themselves um, from the Dutch. They immediately set up a constitutional monarchy, which is going to play a role in the colonial exploitation we're going to be talking about uh, going forward here. As a new country, one of the things that they decided they need to do, and this is mostly under the auspices of the monarch that we're going to be talking about, King Leopold II, better known as the Builder King, um, at least in Belgian history, one of the things they decide they need to do to legitimize uh, their existence as a newly born country is to get into the colonial competition for exploitation um, of the global south. Now, this has been taking place in Southeast Asia. This has been taking place still in parts of Latin America at this point in time. This has been taking a place place in the Southern Pacific. And of course, most notably in Sub-Saharan, I mean, not even just Sub-Saharan, all of the African continent. Now, we must also preface this with the idea that this isn't just about creating legitimacy. There is going to be economic rationale for this, right? There are just a vast array of natural resources throughout the African continent. Obviously, it's huge. And one of the things that you can do to build your prestige as a fresh baby country is exploit the labor and the natural resources of the continent, take those resources back to your, your home nation state, create finished products, showcase them, which we'll talk about when we talk about his museums and zoos and things along those lines that he's able to create. And again, it's not just about like, in this case, building an economy, but it's building a prestige. It's almost like 19th century peacocking. Is there anything that you want to add to this both ideal and material rationale for the wildly immoral practice of colonial enterprises? I think it's also important to point out, just like you said, like the economic rationale, you know, Belgium's a tiny country. And so if it, which it does, right, if it wants to have any kind of economic status on the global stage, it's going to have to find resources elsewhere. And as you mentioned, everyone else is already out colonizing African nations and other nations across the globe. So of course, just inevitably, if they're seeking status and economic, any kind of economic control on the world stage, they're going to have to seek something somewhere else, right? 
And the other layer that we need to add to this is by the 1830s and 1840s, 1850s, most of the European countries are patting themselves on the back at this point for abolishing the transatlantic slave trade first and then abolishing slavery within their own home country. So they're feeling that they're somewhat enlightened now, but that doesn't stop them from then just changing their discourse, mostly for, again, prestigious or economic reasons to then create slave labor within Africa. So it's great that perhaps there are no more slaves in the United Kingdom at this point or within France borders, but there are going, they're going to still use slave labor tactics. They're just going to do it in Africa and hopefully away from the prying eyes of press or, or abolitionists or things along those lines. And that's very important. We get that in the Americas, it takes a little longer for them to abolish slavery. But here in Europe, again, they're feeling very enlightened at this moment in time. And King Leopold is going to use part of this rationale that he is going to help end slavery um, through this process to eventually gain control of the Congo. By the 1800s, though, few European countries had gotten control of the central Congo, which is where a lot of this story is going to take place. The coast, obviously, Europeans had been accessing it since the mid-1400s when the Portuguese more or less kick off the transatlantic slave trade with their travels around West Africa and then around the Cape of Good Hope and off to India and doing all the various things that they do. Um, but the central, the heart, the center, the heart of the Congo has not really been penetrated by the, by the Europeans. And that's for geographic reasons. It is dense, mountainous jungle. When you think of African jungle, you're thinking of the Congo. And many people had, well, I just shouldn't say many people, many Europeans had not made it in there. It's, it's very, very, um, I don't even know what, what the words I'm looking for. I guess I'll just say it. it's a vast jungle, right? It's a vast jungle and it's hard to penetrate. Well, I think that that also plays into the, you know, the question, why the Congo, right? If the if, if you're a baby new country named Belgium and you're thinking like, we need to colonize something, right? So that we can gain the economic under, upper hand, where should we go? The Congo sure. was like, because of its geographical location and difficulty of navigating into its heart, yeah. like you mentioned, it was basically one of the only places left, right? So there were slim pickings at this point. But people knew there were natural resources there. The Congo mm -hmm. River itself is one of the most important rivers in terms of human civilization going back, again, hundreds of thousands of years in human development. The Congo River itself played a huge role because of the vast things you could – it's for trade. You could fish. Obviously, it is a, it's part of the reason why you have um, this rainforest in the center of the Congo. So Europeans had an idea. There's also obviously forays into this region because it goes far enough east that it might also show us the headwaters of another important river, the Nile. Um, and again, it's a way to perhaps uh, entertain taking over regions um, on east on the East African coast, which the Belgians were thinking about that were controlled mm -hmm. by other European nations. They wanted to get in on, on, on trade there as well. So geographically, it's important. And it gave Belgium an, oppor Belgium an opportunity to do a whole host of different things to try and get into this colonial game. Well, and I also just it made me think of that. This is one of the few places that was left where Belgium could go where they wouldn't be stepping on other people's toes. Right. Which they, that, uh, at least in the center of Congo, that's true. But they did have designs to step on a few toes if mm -hmm. they made it all the way to the east coast of Africa, which right. they did have some designs of. Um, regardless, this is unclaimed pickings for Leopold to get in the game. And that's that's where we want to go this go with this. By 1876, King Leopold II had established the International African Association to essentially game plan missionary work and formal colonization. Starting with the idea of missionary work is important. I don't want to try and get into the brain of King Leopold II and talk about how truly faithful he was um, to Christianity. 
But I do think that it is strategic for him to start conversations regarding colonization with missionary work among not only his own people, but other Europeans. Why? Why was that a strategy? Well, uh, this is making me think of a much larger conversation that we clearly don't have time for here, but how missionary work is so oftentimes, even today, connected to colonization, right? But it it allows people to not even like mentally justify, but to economically justify, you know, spending resources on these efforts under the auspices of, you know, religion. Well, and, and again, if you are other Europeans or even the U.S. who he really wants to gain favor with in this enterprise, this looks good that you are going to spread the word and save souls mm-hmm. and quote unquote, eventually when we get to the, the white man's burden, which actually hasn't been authored yet, going to help quote unquote, civilize these other peoples. You're, you're, you're saving them even though they never asked for this, right? You mm-hmm. are helping them realize your level of, of both spiritual and material guidance, right? Like that's, that's what you're doing. He goes on to court the very famous Welsh explorer, Henry Henry Morton Stanley, at the Brussels Geographic Conference, which, of course, he holds. Um, And he argues there is a need to civilize the Congo, not just the peoples of the Congo, but, of course, this wild, vast jungle that we were just talking about that very few Europeans had gone through. Part of all colonial enterprises isn't just the subjugation of the peoples of those places, but of the lands. There is this uniquely Western understanding that controlling nature is also part of the civilization process. We see this with numerous colonial enterprises to include right here in the United States, the idea to civilize the West, right? That was part of the romanticization of the frontier thesis that's uh, Frederick Jackson Turner's, right? It's not just about, in this case, well, ethnic cleansing of Native Americans or subduing Native Americans. It is this idea of more or less shaping the land to fit what you think is a civilized nature. Anything to add there? Nope. Okay. He gained fame through finding the lost, uh, excuse me, Henry Morton Stanley gained fame through finding the lost missionary, Dr. Livingstone in 1871. So this was a big get for Leopold by more or less uh, this Henry Morton Stanley free agent explorer. He basically signs Henry Morton Stanley to, again, to basically start to chart out a course for colonization in the Congo. And it was important. Stanley does sign on. He ends up exploring, setting some treaties with local tribes as well as other European nations, and importantly, publishes uh, Um, about the possibilities. On treaties, this is what he had to say. Basically, uh, well, this is not what he had to say, but this is a report on the treaties that would be established with other African kingdoms. Says, and I quote, the treaties with these little African tyrants, which generally consist of four long pages of which they do not understand a word and to which they sign a cross in order to have a peace and to receive gifts are really only serious matters for European powers. In the event of disputes over the te- over the territories, they do not concern the black sovereign who signs them for a moment. The important part of this, and this was written in 1892, another minion in the area, uh, Bonchamp, is the one that writes this, but essentially what he's saying here is all of these treaties that are going to be set up by, by European like Stanley at the behest of Leopold aren't necessarily about legitimacy for the African tribes or the African or the African kingdoms. They're about legitimacy for Europeans, right? And again, this isn't new. We see this with the numerous treaties that were signed by the British in Tasmania in an episode that we've already done, or the treaties signed by the British in mainland Australia, or of course by the Americans in their conquest of the West with Native Americans. These treaties don't necessarily apply to the societies they're meant to apply to. What do you think I mean by that? Or what does Bonchamp mean by that? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it, it, 
solely functions to legitimize the actions of the whites to the whites, right? Like it has no standing or bearing, or even like it says here, understanding by the indigenous people of the lands. It's not for their sake, right? It's clearly just for the sake of the colonizers. Right. And then they can come back on these treaties and saying, well, you signed here and you signed here and you signed here by forcing this upon societies that don't even recognize the same type of legislation, right? They're Mm -hmm. completely different um, in terms of their society, what they view as legitimate. These things are completely different, but they can always point back to them and and, and use this word that we really love in Western colonial um, enterprises, law, like like law and legislation. It's right here in writing. This says X, Y, and Z. And again, those of you that have been following our channel for a while, we could also argue that as, as, as good as we think laws might be, they also legitimize control, right? And they are part of power dynamics. And in this well, and case- like, Ideologically, none of these societies would have thought, I mean, they had no concept of like, you could write words on a piece of paper that would signify ownership over the land, right? Like that's not a thing. Right. And more times than not in history, laws are written from the top down and rationalize inequitable power dynamics. Mm-hmm. Stanley himself is 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 against slavery, so I should say that he's 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 been an advocate against slavery for a, a long period of time, but he's not for equality, at least not racial equality as we would understand it now. And he's also okay because of this with the colonial projects in which he's basically speculating for. He's also sort of okay with the horrid treatment of the indigenous peoples of of the places that he's exploring. He's also kind of complicated in that he respected the culture. He liked to learn about the culture and the languages and the rituals and traditions of all of the different peoples he was meeting. So he's a very complicated figure, essentially, is what I want to say about, about, about Stanley, is that he is part of the colonial enterprise, but also had this romanticized, almost orientalist notion of the peoples that he was helping colonize. His most famous writing of the time period, and it's his, it's his work in 1885, and it was pretty popular because people like to read about these romanticized exploratory expeditions, right? Like, and it's called The Congo and the Founding of Its Free State. He wrote it in 1885. You can find it. It's now open source online. So if you want to read a romanticized rendition of colonization from from an explorer himself, it is available. The Congo and the Founding of Its Free State. I don't have anything else to add to that. But anyway, I thought I'd mention it. All of this leads up to a very important conference in 1884. It's a conference that most people will learn about in a history class and, 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 and obviously gloss right over it and not necessarily register it. But the 1884 Berlin Conference um, is something that we have to talk about briefly. This is essentially European powers getting together and essentially setting the terms and conditions for their colonial projects in Africa. This is basically a bunch of, uh, and I'll say it, this is, this is a bunch of white people getting together in Europe to decide the fate of Africa without inviting the Africans. Um, which is very interesting since they had all been patting themselves on the back at this point, And by 1884, even the United States had abolished slavery. They're all patting themselves on the back for being so forward thinking by getting rid of this horrible institution of slavery. And yet they're now designing a plan in Berlin, Germany, about how they're going to basically move this labor system to Africa itself. Um, 14 nations show up at this Berlin Berlin conference and basically agree on terms and conditions. Now, this will play a role later for some of the other nations to call out Belgium later for their exploitation of the region. They will say that Belgium is violating terms and conditions of the Berlin conference. So it does have big consequence here. The Congo itself 
at the Berlin Conference would be dubbed a free free trade zone. But Leopold's quote-unquote corporation ends up receiving territorial preference as a campaign that he through a campaign that he built with Stanley, and it was sold on the idea that Leopold, with the help of Stanley, is going to complete missionary philanthropy within the Congo. And obviously, all of the other Europeans like to hear this; they think this is important, but. Uh, Leopold is is less concerned with European support. He's really hoping that the United States will approve this. Now, the United States is not the world power uh, of the of the 19th century. So, why do you think Leopold was hoping for U.S. approval much more so than maybe British or French or whatever? Why 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 appeal so heavily to the United States in this case? I mean, they definitely at this point have a unique economic situation with slavery. You know, just recently ending and not only that but their position in the textile mm. globally right with cotton etc that they're kind of like you said they're not a world power but they are uniquely positioned in many ways and 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 maybe he had some foresight that because of what was going on in the united states they would eventually become a power it, mm. maybe he had a little bit of foresight there and knew they would have a lot of influence um also them being a relatively new country um, alongside Belgium, maybe there was going to be this shared experience of trying to get into the colonial game competition. The United States was trying, right? They had already uh, waged a uh, uh, basically an uncalled for war against Mexico and seized about 55% of that. They were well on their way in about, I want to say, 1884. Yeah, in about 13, 14 years, they will declare war on Spain and seize a bunch of territory that way, Puerto Rico and Guam and so on and so forth, the Philippines, so on and so forth. So yeah, they were both engaged in this idea of how do we begin to compete with other European powers as new countries here on a colonial scale and win this uh, economic prestige. Okay. He does win U.S. approval with the help of Henry Shelton Sanford, who saw an opportunity to create a Liberia-like work colony for freed men. So he wins with the help of an American named Henry Shelton Sanford, and essentially what they were hoping for is is, is basically a cotton colony for freed men. What did he mean by freed men? What do I mean by freed men in the framing from Henry Shelton Sanford? And these are recently freed slaves, right? That were sent back to Africa. Mm-hmm. Without going through that entire history, it probably deserves its own episode because I don't think we ever did one on it, but we're not going to do that right now. Long story short, there was a movement by some abolitionists who wanted to get rid of slavery in the United States for some moral and ethical reasons, but also for some racial reasons, and just ship the recently freed slaves back to Africa. Obviously, this came to fruition to a small extent in the nation state of Liberia. They thought they could do this as well with the Congo um, and still get... Um, resources like cotton out of it. Well, yeah, I'm going to say like, it wasn't like they were doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They wanted to like transport the labor from the United States where it was now illegal back to Africa so they could exploit it there. Exactly. What Leopold created with Stanley's help was a single shareholder operation known as the International Association of the Congo. It had been established actually slightly before the Berlin Conference back in 1882. The idea is that this would create, actually before I even dig into that, single shareholder operation. What do I mean by a single shareholder operation? Who's the shareholder? It's Leo. Yeah, exactly. The king. It's Leo. I mean, this is basically Mm -hmm. a private enterprise by the king of a newly formed nation state hoping to profit off of this colonial enterprise. Yeah, nothing corrupt about that at all. No, nothing. Um, The idea was that they were going to create the illusion of a semi-liberal political structure within what was going to happen in the Congo after the Berlin Conference. Leopold was going to give himself the title of sovereign. He did assign 
puppets to three different departments so he can, of course, diversify what's going on there. And if anyone comes looking for potential corruption, which again, it's it's already in the cards, there will be corruption. He can say, well, actually, I have this administrative right here. These three, de- these at this administration, I should say, three departments, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Department of Finance. All of this is under the International Association of the Congo. All of this would be in Brussels, though, not necessarily in the Congo. Okay, there was going to be representation of Belgium in the Congo that was going to come in the form of a vice governor general and a minister of justice in the town of Boma. Fourteen districts were then divided up in the Congo. Again, Leopold's designing all of this. Fourteen districts would be established with Europeans at the head of each. They went on to buy elite Congolese aid for exploitation. And this is something we've talked about in, in, in numerous case studies on this channel. Why would certain Congolese willingly sell out some of their land and their own people to Europeans. Do you think they truly understood what they were doing or the level of exploitation that was about to hit the Congo? Were they just corrupt themselves? What's in it for them um, to exploit, again, their own people in this case? And probably all of the above, but I definitely, they probably didn't foresee the tragedy that was coming for sure. But even if they did, I can't guarantee that they wouldn't have also done what they did anyways, right? It's the people that are looking to get a leg up on their, I say countrymen at this point or whatever. But in this case, they're fellow Congolese, right? And they take take a certain position in the colonizing process in order to do so. That's a terrible position. And it benefits the colonizer because they get to essentially outsource some of the domination, right? The actual work of doing this. We saw it with the Kenyans, how they were able to buy off certain um, different tribes of Kenyans to suppress the uh, the Kikuyu tribe specifically and eventually reward them with Kikuyu lands that they, of course, did not earn. We saw this in India with the creation of the Indian Sepoy regiments that would suppress other Indians. We see that, I mean, we even saw this in southern plantations in the United States where overseers would often be just other slaves, right? We see this over and over again. And and unfortunately, it was an effective strategy for oppression, right? It also creates this divide and rule. So if you are worried about potential resistance, rather than looking all the way up the proverbial hierarchy, those at the very bottom will be looking to their immediate oppressor rather than looking at the entire picture, right? And that's Mm -hmm. one of the important things that I think the Belgians already understood, right? They come into the colonial game late. They've seen these tried and true enterprises by the Brits or the French or the Americans or whoever else they've been looking to model after, and they also implement this system. So Leopold, during this time, also decides he is going to assert that all quote-unquote vacant lands in the Congo will fall under the propriety of the state. Now, obviously, this is going to be wildly open to corruption. What does one consider vacant, right? What could one consider vacant? Any commentary there? Uh, Yeah, I mean, you could consider anything you wanted to be vacant at that point, right? Because if you're the white colonizer, you can say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter what they've done here, right? They're quote unquote uncivilized. So none of this actually counts as improvement or occupied or whatever, right? And these are mirror images to, again, what we see in the Aboriginal um, colonial mm-hmm. project in Australia or the North American colonial project by the French and the British and the Spanish and so on and so forth. Lands that were actually used by people there, but didn't have structures on them, for lack of a better term, but you're used and left pristine for various reasons. Maybe it's for hunting, maybe it's for fishing, maybe it's for gathering certain resources that only grow under certain conditions. 
we perceive those as vacant because, again, there's no structure on them. They haven't been going back to this idea of essentially overhauling what the natural geography looks like to make it fit whatever our enlightened worldviews are at a time under, again, a positivist lens. Check another episode for positivism. Whatever it looks like, it doesn't fit what the European lens is at this time and consider it vacant. Well, and like this argument has been used by the colonizers right before to justify and argue that the local indigenous population had no rights of ownership over the property, right? Because they would look to their laws and say, well, ownership would be established by some kind of terraforming or improvement of the land or like rigid permanent structures. So they'll go into like a North America and say, well, none of these tribes you know, really have terraformed the land in any significant way or built permanent structures. So they don't have any claim to ownership whatsoever. It's free for our taking, right? Which is obviously nonsense. The International Association of the Congo did, and I will say did, we will give them this this bit of credit. They did liberate slaves under the old European and or traditional servitude conditions. So what little bits of slavery still existed in the Congo to other Europeans that had made brief little forays in there or even traditional servitude conditions were outlawed by the International Association of the Congo. And I'm using the word servitude intentionally because oftentimes in history, when we think about slavery, one of the things apologists tend to do is they argue that ancient societies or African societies or other societies all around the world had a form of slavery. And to an extent, they did have servitude. But to compare it to like antebellum American slavery or what was going on with the transatlantic slave trade is just wildly incorrect, right? It's not It's not a apples to apples comparison. Uh, servants in many of these societies could own property. They were allowed to get married. Their kids obviously uh, could have different conditions put on them. It wasn't necessary, and it certainly wasn't racially motivated. That's a major, major difference as well. So it's not necessarily an apples to apples uh, uh, comparison. But the idea that you are liberating many of these servants makes you look very good, again, in an abolitionist era where many of the Europeans, and again, in this case, the U.S. as well, who's going to be part of this process, are, ha- are patting themselves on the back for finally abolishing slavery within their borders. To essentially enforce what colonial rule will look like within the Belgian Congo the uh, well, Leopold basically. I want to say I was going to say the Belgian Parliament, but they don't even really get involved with this. It's really Leopold creates something called the Force Publique, and of course, this is he argues for the safety of the public. Of course, I mean it's it's in the name. We see this over and over again, and enforcing agency given some sort of nice name to make it to make the people that are going to have to deal with its enforcement and its oppression feel like this is for the greater good. We see this over and over again with the Committee for Public Safety in the French Revolution, which ends up leading to like the 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 the, the great ter- the, the reign of terror, almost said the great terror, the reign of terror. We see this over and over again. Um, again, it's a very clear strategy. What is that strategy? Anything you want to add? Um, no, the first place my mind went was the French Revolution. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Um, Patriot Acts, things along those lines. These things that are named very nicely, but are actually oppressive forces that cement power dynamics of inequity within these systems. So the force public, which will play a huge role in some of the things I'm about to talk about, is created, again, under the auspices of safety. Not just for the Belgians, but of course for the Congolese themselves. Um, okay. Now, one of the things that 
that Leopold immediately realizes that colony or colonization as a private enterprise is actually tough. One of the things that had happened over time with these much more experienced colonial powers is many of them did start as private enterprises, even dating back uh, to the, the, the Brits in Virginia. Those were private enterprises at first. It wasn't all of the British. It was the Virginia Company. It was the Massachusetts Bay Company. Or if we want to talk about the British uh, East India Company or the Dutch East India Company, these are private enterprises that begin the colonial process. But in almost every case, because of the trials and tribulations they face, oftentimes in the forms of resistance, it becomes then more quote unquote national or royal enterprises. They usually end up getting absorbed into a more state-based form of colonization for a whole host of reasons we don't have time to get into. But one of the things that he realizes is very difficult as a private enterprise is rushing against the competition of more established players. An example of that was competition coming up from South Africa in the form of Cecil Rhodes, who was claiming lands from the South, um, as well as um, another competitor that Leopold had to deal with was the Zanzibari slavers on the East Coast that were coming in um, east to west, essentially. They were holding sway in the eastern part of the Congo. Uh, I briefly want to mention Rhodes. For those of you that don't know, Cecil Rhodes is important. He eventually had an entire region named after him in South Africa known as Rhodesia. It is now the modern-day nation-state of Zimbabwe. But Cecil Rhodes ends up being a very important player in what would become diamond exploitation um, in South Africa. That is an issue we are still dealing with today. Everyone, I think, every one of our listeners probably going to be aware of the uh, controversy around blood diamonds. Well, we can thank Cecil Rhodes for starting that entire process. He's one of the main players there. Um, it's also not coincidental that the Belgians get involved to this day. Much of the diamond trade ends up being in Belgium, in an important city known as Antwerp. So all of this ends up getting tied together. I don't have time to go deeper into that, but it's important for us to understand that Cecil Rhodes and the Belgian connection takes place during this period of time in the late 19th century. Now, one of the other things that Leopold finds as a problem for a private enterprise um, colony like, like, like the Congo is going to be is that he is in immediate debt, right? Even though he is a royal um, and he's the king of Belgium, this is a private enterprise. So he had not been able necessarily to dip into like the public coffers for this, this, this project. And so he had been taking out loans, which uh, feeling the pressure of being in debt some might argue, this isn't letting him off the hook, he is a horrible man, but some might argue some of the oppression that is a, that we're about to talk about takes place because he is feeling the immediate pressure of being in debt. Debt obviously changes the game just a little bit. Um, one of the things that he immediately changes upon realizing that he needs to start making revenue immediately was that vacant land policy that we already talked about. He needs more land to extract more resources and eventually labor from. Um, I'm not going to try and say the, pol the policy's name in French. I have it written here and I was about to try it, but I've decided uh, uh, rather than butcher French, I'll just say it's the vacant land policy. The other thing that, that, that goes on regarding the vacant land policy is that newly freed slaves, quote unquote freed slaves, could garner commodities like ivory and rubber, but only sell them to the free state. So part of that vacant land policy was this idea that, yes, we've just liberated you from your indentured servitude under an African king or maybe slavery under a European um, homesteader or something along those lines. And you can go out and you can maybe make a living through these new commodities that we've identified as valuable, ivory, rubber, et cetera. But you, this is not a free market by any stretch of the imagination. You can only sell it to the uh, Belgian free state or the Congo free state here in this case. And that means you can only sell it to basically Leopold and his agents. 
This also meant that the state got to set prices on commodities. And rather than pay Congolese or their newly newly freed slaves in this case in money, they paid them in guns. What might this motivate? I mean, internal warfare. Okay. One of the things modern uh, Westerners, for lack of a better term, tend to associate Africa with is constant civil war and violence and things along those lines. And those things exist. I'm not going to sit here on this podcast right now and say they don't exist. But one of the things that we fail to recognize is that it is the colonial policies that laid the groundwork for this constant state of violence and civil war based on control of lands and commodities. And the Belgian example right here is clear as day. It's not even just the Belgian example. We know that the transatlantic slave trade was based on setting rivalries within African kingdoms, paid in guns for them themselves to gather up slaves, to buy more guns, which led to more violence, which led to more rationale to need more guns, thus getting more slaves and so on and so forth. It was a a, a vicious cycle. And we're seeing that here again. Like this incentive is is set up um, just to create more violence. By 1892, though, Leopold's debt was still soaring. Um, And so he decided to create something called the domainal system. The domainal system in the Belgian Congo or the Congo Free State, I should say, um, was essentially the idea that private investors could pay state an annual pay the state an annual dividend to claim land on 10 to 15 year contracts which would essentially fund warlords who again paid in guns had to generate revenue by forcing their own subjects to work essentially reenslaving them so that was the idea there that private investors could go into little parts of land so essentially the free state itself, the Congo free state, is no longer about extracting just resources. It also becomes basically a land speculation and land holding company in which other private investors are buying little bits of land and basically becoming little dictators of those little bits of land and and, and paying warlords, um, local warlords, in guns to exploit labor so that they don't have to feel like they're the ones exploiting the labor, right? They're not the ones re-enslaving Africans. It's Africans re-enslaving Africans, and they get off feeling, I I don't know, morally unchained by this this horrific system that they've put in place. Do you have anything to add to that? It's atrocious. I mean, that's for sure. The companies that were set up in this domainal system also were granted the right to place in bondage any Congolese that they deemed were not working hard enough. That is very vague language there. Essentially, this is legalizing slavery um, under certain auspices. This is not unlike what we see in things like the 13th Amendment in the United States, right? If you are accused of committing, or excuse me, I shouldn't say accused, if you are convicted of a crime, right? You can be placed back into bondage and forced to work for the state. Needless to say, what does that motivate? It motivates corruption. You can look at any Congolese and say, if you're not working 20 out of the 24 hours a day, then you're not working hard enough and we can place you in bondage. And there are numerous images of this time period of Africans being rechained. Literally, this is not hyperbole. The, fo- the, 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 the camera had been invented at this point in time. You are seeing pictures of people with, 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 uh, I don't know what the thing around your neck goes, but like the metal thing around your neck and chains. What is that thing called? The collar? Yeah, thank you. Um, 
Anyway, the remainder of the free tro trade zone at this point in time is declared a fife of the crown where revenue all went straight to Leo himself. And that is an interesting term here, essentially. We're going back to middle-aged feudalism at this point in time where they are going to consider the Congo or anything not privately owned now in the Congo since he sold off some of that land, a fife of the crown. And of course, that means all of these individuals there within, to include the Congolese, will now be subjects of Leo himself, of Leopold II himself. Well, this is also the first point where we see, not like this is the first time there's corruption in this process, but the blending of this corporation that the king had set up, and now it's starting to become, you know, national policy. There are also going to be, during this period of time, wars of aggression by the Belgians. In 1891, Leopold sent a Canadian mercenary named William Stairs to the Katanga region to force a treaty on a kingdom that had very, again, a very rich history. I said it in the intro. I don't have time to get into the rich history of a lot of these places, and I would probably do them a disservice myself, but a, a kingdom called the Yiki Kingdom. Um, the results in this led to the murder and beheading of royalty in the Yiki kingdom, and then the fourth signing of a treaty, which essentially acquiesced the land and resources of the Yiki kingdom to the Belgians. So this was just violence. This was outright violence. Um, now, that said, I will say that that Yiki kingdom also had a very rich history of indentured servitude, and some might even argue sold slaves both way back during the transatlantic slave, slave trade and to the Zanzibari slave traders of the 19th century. So some say this was a, in 1891, this could have been painted if anyone wanted to call Belgium out on this as a liberatory mission. So I must, I must preface this with that. Well, it's not a preface. I'm finishing with that regarding this, this uh, action by the mercenary William Stairs. In 1892, the Belgians start a proxy war um, with a Zanzibari slaver, a very famous slaver named Tipu Tip. Um, both essentially used Congolese mercenaries to fight because, well, I mean, of course they do. Um, but the Belgians do win this battle against the Zanzibaris, um, and the victory is able to be sold back to Europeans as, as, as great public relations. This is, and again, it's undeniable that this, this individual, Tipu Tip, was a, was a slaver. Um, the Zanzibari slaver ends up being defeated by the Belgians. This looks good and justifies other actions that they are going to do um, in the Belgian Congo. In 1894, seeking expansion into southern Sudan, essentially the Belgians begin a fight with what were called the Modest Rebels in a region called the Lado Enclave. The reason this is important is because this would be um, a place that the British are also eyeing. At first, they're cool with the Belgians going in there and, uh, aggressively and starting this fight with the Modest Rebels rebels, but they are not going to be thrilled about this later when Belgium doesn't just leave. The UK was essentially like, all right, we'll help. We're having problems with the re with these rebels. We'll let the Belgians help us out a little bit. Later, though, the UK is going to force Belgium to give it back to them, to control over this region back in 1909. Anyway, the reason I mention this is this is three very clear-cut examples that the Belgians aren't just there for missionary work. They're there um, with a military force as well. That said, the debt problems of Leo do not go away. Um, they pave the way for colonial abuse that, um, I don't know, is, I mean, it's legion at this point in time. Belgium colonial officials would be paid in commissions rather than salaries. That's the first thing, first warning sign that we're going to have problems. Why would paying your colonial officials that are dictating the way things are going to run in the Congo Free State rather than just giving them a salary like you make, I don't know, whatever. I, here's your salary every year. This is what you're going to get. 
No, you get no salary. You're only paid in commission. Why? How could this lead to problems? It motivates them to be as oppressive as absolutely possible, right? To eke out as much as they possibly can. And wring every bit of resource and labor they can out of mm. their charges in their 14 various districts. The Congolese eventually do not even are not even allowed to essentially sell to the state. All surplus resources or all surplus commodities are now going to be considered state-mandated and placed within a quota system. Essentially, if you just happen to live in one of these 14 districts, essentially comprising what would be the entire Congo Free State, you're, you're now required to gather a certain amount of commodity depending on where you are. Eventually, the main one's going to be rubber. We all know I'm, I'm going to get to rubber here in just a second. But there's still ivory trade. There's still things going on in that regard. Still probably some minerals, a little bit of mining going on. But it's all going to be state-mandated quota. You used to at least be able to sell this to the free state. And like I said, you were often paid in, in weaponry rather than, than money or food or something more useful. You were paid in weaponry. But still, this state-mandated quota becomes part of um, free state policy at this moment in time. He also, and again, I keep using the term free state because that's what what, what Belgium called it, uh, and Leopold specifically called it, but it's anything but free trade. He began to limit free trade with tariffs and duties, even on other Europeans that were seeking to um, make their fortunes in the Congo. And that's what gets the rest of Europe's attention. This is where violations of the Berlin Treaty start to take place. Limiting free trade within the quote-unquote Congo free state goes against uh, essentially what the Berlin Treaty sought to sought to create in the Congo, this place where all of the Europeans essentially can come and, again, exploit the resources and labor to make themselves vast amounts of wealth. There are also going to be some important expenses that Leopold is going to accrue during this period of time. Like many colonial projects of the uh, late 19th century and early 20th century, they are going to need to build infrastructure to essentially systematize and speed up the exploitation of resources and then distribution thereof. So a railroad is started in 1890. It is known as the Matadi-Kinshasa Railway. It's a project that takes about eight years to complete, 1890 to 98. Needless to say, the Belgians weren't going to build this. Who's going to be forced to build this? The Congolese under horrible work conditions. Uh, at least 3,500 Congolese end up dying in the construction of this railway under the leadership of a man named Albert Thys. Um, when many Congolese refused, after, of course, seeing these work conditions, um, to work on this railway, the Belgians... Uh, began to recruit people from other parts of the world, namely from China and the Barbados, um, which and, and the Barbados and Barbados, I should just say. These workers end up filling in. People from Barbados were actually held at gunpoint while they worked to complete this railway. And 300 to 500 Chinese end up dying building this railway, which, again, it says a lot about these colonial projects. They are copy and pasting from other colonial projects. Using the Chinese example, one need look no further than what was taking place at about the exact same time in the United States regarding rail railways here. I mean, we even get later on, because of xenophobia, um, the Chinese Exclusion Act and U.S. legislation. But again, these are cut and paste examples. Um, and, and I suppose that's because other the Europeans, especially the Belgians in this case, see them as effective um, for exploitation of land and resources and, and labor as well. Um, the thing that's going to save Leah, Leopold's ass, uh, at least financially, in terms of the resources that he is getting out of the Congo is 
the invention and then um, mass production of the automobile, because the automobile is going to require, well, it requires a whole host of resources. We've done an entire episode on how, uh, what a horrible invention the automobile is in terms of ecologically, economically, sociologically, uh, politically, et cetera. We've already done a whole episode on that. But specifically for this, it's going to require one resource um, nearly above all others. I don't want to say above all others, but it's very important. It's rubber, rubber. The Congo has rubber, rubber galore. And again, not just for tires, but belts and hoses and all kinds of other things. So the automobile and the advent of the automobile and the proliferation of the automobile as a primary source uh, or primary source, primary form of transportation transportation is going to save Leo. Rubber demands source. And he takes this opportunity to create successive decrees mandating that all rubber within the Congo Free State was actually property of the state, i.e. him, and to be harvested and turned into Belgian colonial officials at regular intervals. This is a decree. So essentially, this is a top-down decree, almost like, I mean, it is. It's an executive order saying, if you live in the Congo Free State and you are Congolese, you will now, at regular intervals, deliver rubber under quota to a colonial official. That is now part of your life. You're not going to be compensated for it. This is just, essentially, this is the cost of living in the Congo. This is the cost of living in your home. Rubber in the Congo, though, I must say, this is an interesting side note, is, is a little bit different than other other areas around the world where people were acquiring rubber. Rubber in the Congo was not from like TAPS elsewhere, but from the vines of the rubber trees themselves. And these trees needed to be slashed. The interesting part of this is this process itself was somewhat abusive. You slash the vines, you get all the rubber out of the vines, and then you actually lather your whole body up with it, let it dry, and then you have to have it scraped off, which is wildly painful later, and that's how you acquire rubber in the Congo. So even the process of getting the rubber is a human rights violation, I would argue. Any thoughts on anything we've talked about regarding the automobile, rubber, and the acquisition thereof? No, I think that, you know, you can't have a conversation about the Congo without talking about sort of the global economic milieu surrounding the automobile, right? Specifically the automobile and how it so quickly, once it became mass produced, proliferated, you know, industrialized nations. And then, like you said, just the demand for rubber that is just exponential as a result and like Leop, like you said, Leopold just kind of lucked out that he happened to be in the Congo where you could get rubber at this time. Otherwise, who knows how this, pro- I think I believe that the co- colonial project in the Congo would have failed. You know, he kind of got quote unquote saved, even though it's atrocious, but like financially in his project by the automobile. So it's at this point that we get to what many would call the onset of genocide in the Congo. And we'll get to like what we label this colonial project later. But this is where I freely admit this is going to be the onset of, of, of basically a genocidal program. The force public, which I'll pretty much be calling the FP from here on out, begins focus more on enforcing the rubber quota system than anything else. They're not there for public safety. We already talked about that. Under Leo's new decrees, their main job is to ensure that the Congolese are collecting their rubber quota. Leon, uh, Leopold also secretly encourages Arab slave traders uh, to enforce things on the eastern side, because that's where they're coming from, despite his rhetoric of being an abolitionist to essentially fill his ranks. The goal essentially was that the Arab slave traders themselves would pick up more Congolese uh, uh, and, and enslave them and then put them back into the Congo Free State so that, were there, so that there would be more labor to acquire this rubber. 
um, which again, it, it goes wholly against what, what he had argued he was there for. Now, as far as East African slaves, they had already been conditioned in Catholic missions. They were socialized to hate the Congolese. They were given guns. They were given whips. And they were taught to let the frustration of their own plight under these Zanzibari uh, uh, slavers out on the Congolese themselves. So what you have here, and again, this, this, this has been used over and over again. One of the examples we brought up was, was, was with Kenya, where rival tribes, um, there was divide and rule strategy. They essentially created these programs or these conditions in which these rivalries would lead to more intense violence. Well, here we have it as well. You take slaves from a different part of Africa, bring them into the Congo, and essentially give them a little bit of authority of another group of people, in this case, the Congolese, and it leads to even more violence. By the turn of the century, there were 19,000 slaves engaged in this type of activity, mostly in the eastern part of the Congo at this point in time. It, there was torture, there was rape, there were village burnings, and the Belgians can kind of wash their hands of this, saying this is like African on African crime. But in reality, the stage was set by the Belgians themselves, and this is where we get what is known as the Red Rubber System. Essentially, it is a system with no oversight or legal protection for the Congolese. Labor systems, the labor system itself was only aim was to meet Le uh, Leopold's quotas on rubber, where private companies within the Congo Free State, those ones I told you about that get 10 to 15 year contracts, they're encouraged to get creative, quote unquote, creative to produce as much rubber as possible. And that's the funny part of this where free trade kind of like breaks down a little bit. These private companies that bought into these 10 to 15 year contracts, they're also going to be exploited a little bit by Leo because they are also right now subject to the quota, which is kind of interesting, but they're also getting wealthy themselves. So I don't know that they mind as much as the Congolese. Regardless, an example of this would be the Abir Congo company, which was notable for streamlining the process of exploitation. When I say streamlining, what they would do is they would take women and children captive in each village so that the men would be forced to work, basically threatening the lives of these women and kids. And again, the men wanting to save the lives of their wives, their children, and so on and so forth would have to work. The problem with this is if you're holding the women and kids captive and the men are collecting rubber all day, they leave, that leaves literally nobody to grow and cultivate food in the village, which once you're done working your 22 to 23 hour workday as a man, and of course being held captive, the women and children don't have time. This led to mass famines, mass famines throughout the Congo, which of course caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the Congo because there was no food being grown. All of the labor resources were being used to extract rubber. There were even um, manuals created uh, by the FP or the Force Publique to teach militias on how to take hostages, the most effective way to take hostages, the most effective way to threaten the men to force them to work. Literal manuals, not unlike an owner's manual for setting up a VCR. They had manuals on how to take African hostages. What do you think of that? I don't know why I used the VCR example, but... Yeah, I was just about to comment. That's an interesting one. You d dated yourself there. Um, yeah. The whole thing is just atrocious, right? And I, like... It, I, I don't even know what to say, but... it's They're so dumb, right? I, like, I don't know why I would expect them to be smarter than this, but the, the whole thing you brought up about, like, clearly there's famine because you've imprisoned everyone that isn't getting rubber. So what did you think was going to happen? Like, the problem is... They don't actually care because all of the workers are expendable, right? There's, in their minds, more than enough to go around. So they don't actually care if they're going to die by the hundreds of thousands. As long as there's enough to get the rubber they need, they're good, right? The whole thing is just absolutely outrageous. Um, another company, 
the Anversois Company, went on to literally recreate plantations based on the Southern Antebellum American model. I mean, you have no more clear-cut evidence that slavery came back, that made a comeback. Slavery made a comeback. They built plantations based on the model of the Southern United States in the, again, again early 19th century, um, because they saw that as effective. Workers who ended up refusing, if you were a Congolese worker, ended up refusing all of this, um, as well as dissenters, were initially beaten with um, something called the uh, chicote. I, I can't pronounce it correctly. I shouldn't have even probably tried, but regardless, the hippo hide. It's essentially a hippo hide and you would be whipped. Um, continued resistance led to village burning by the force publique. So if you were in a village and uh, initially you decided we're not going to uh, play ball with these companies, the Abir Congo company and Versois, we're not going to play ball with them. Well, initially they would then, the force publique would show up with hippo hide, obviously at gunpoint and, and, and whip everybody in the village. If you continue to resist, they burnt the whole thing down, which is a show of force, and 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 we must understand. But as Nick said, we must understand that that's actually kind of a dumb strategy. If you burn down the village and these people have nowhere to live, eventually they're they're going to die, and you lose your labor force. This is just violence for the excuse of violence, is it not? Mm-hmm. Um, private hired militias by the various companies were also encouraged by Leopold II, obviously because these militias will help enforce his policies, but also save him a little bit of money on his FPs, his force publique. Um, there's a great example that comes to us from, from one of the watershed historiographies on this that I haven't mentioned yet, but I, I probably should now. Like the, the go-to secondary source based on primaries of this is a, is a book and then eventually a, a documentary called King Leopold's Ghost written by Hochschild. And it is. It is like the main source on this, on a, on a lot of what happened in, in the Belgian Congo. But I want to read a quote from from King Leopold's ghost here that kind of discusses this process here of the hired militias um, and the hippo hide beatings and the village burnings and things along those lines. So, and I quote, I'll start here. One junior officer described a raid to punish a village that had protested. The officer in command, quote unquote, ordered us to cut off the heads of the men and hang them on the village palisades and to hang the women and the children on the palisade in the form of a cross. After seeing a Congolese person killed for the first time, a Danish missionary wrote, and I quote, the soldier said, don't take this to heart so much. They kill us if we don't bring the rubber. The commissioner has promised us if we have plenty of hands, he will shorten our service which is interesting to me. I want to talk about this and I'm going to get to it here in just a second. The hands is one of the most important like hallmark symbols of the free of the Congo Free State. But what we see here is oftentimes these these very grotesque human sacrifices as an intimidation tactic by the Belgians themselves. Wildly inhumane. I don't even know that I need any more commentary on that. I think the quote kind of does that. Initially though, the failure to meet the quotas in these villages, the rubber quotas, meant death for individuals. But this is important. These idiots that are running these companies, as well as the FP, begin to realize that executing people immediately was actually hurting their labor pool. So they decide to try and scale back just a little bit. They eventually decide that mutilation was the preferred form of oppression for both punishment and then eventually proof of death. So if you did end up executing anybody, you would cut off their hand as proof of death. Now, why would anyone want a proof of death? This is what makes it so grotesque. This is one of the most important parts of what makes it so grotesque. To save money, both the companies as well as Leopold himself 
did not want wasted ammunition. And to pro- prove that you were not wasting amu- ammunition when you executed somebody, you needed to have a hand brought back, like a literal hand of a human being brought back for each bullet that was used. It was basically a trading system. And, 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 I, and I, I, I must stress this, it actually did become a trading system for a brief period of time among the FP that hands, human hands, hands of Congolese workers would become a currency. What do you think of that? I don't even know what to say. Right? It's grotesque and graphic, like you said. It's terrible. We have another quote from the time that comes from King Leopold's ghost. It's not It's not from the author himself. It's a primary source he uses, a priest named uh, Swambe. And he's speaking of a specific um, Belgian officer named Leon uh, Fievez, I want to I say, who ran a district north of a place called Stanley Pool. And I quote, the, the priest had this to say, all blacks saw this man as the devil of the equator. From all of the bodies killed in the field, you had to cut off the hands. He wanted to see the number of hands cut off by each soldier who had to bring them in baskets. A village which refused to provide rubber would be completely swept clean. As a young man, I saw, uh, his name's Leon, I saw Leon's soldier, Malili, and then guarding the village of Boyeka, take a net, put 10 arrested natives in it, attach a big stone to the net, and make it tumble into the river. Rubber causes these torments. That's why we no longer want to hear its name spoken. Soldiers made young men kill or rape their own mothers and sisters. Another example of this comes to us from a, another source um, on it. It's called, it's from Peter Forbath in 1977. He wrote a book called the river Congo, um, which also discusses um, the free Congo state or the Congo free state. I keep doing it backwards regardless. And I quote, the baskets of severed heads set down at severed hands, I should say, set down at the feet of the European post commanders became the symbol of the Congo free state. The collection of hands became an end in and of itself. Forced public soldiers brought them to the stations in place of rubber. They even went out to harvest them instead of rubber. They became a sort of currency. They came to be used to make up the shortfalls in rubber quotas to replace the people who were demanded for the forced labor gangs and the forced public soldiers were paid their bonuses on the basis of how many hands they collected. This was incentivizing human mutilation. I mean, let's clarify, right, just so we can paint this picture of of what's going on. So there's a certain rubber quota that must be met. If that's not met, then you must make up that gap by proving that you have executed the workers that did not meet the quota. And you prove that by delivering their hands to demonstrate, like Jared said earlier, proof of death. So... The, the powers that be are going to get one way or another proof that you either here's the rubber that we have used to meet our quota or here's the workers that we have killed because they didn't meet the quota. They, it, disgusting. Further incentivizing what we would just call African on African crime is the African slaves brought in from East African colonies or bought through the Zanzibari slave traders could actually shorten shorten their indentured servitude by collecting more hands than others. So you now just don't have Belgians cutting off Congolese hands. You have other Africans cutting off uh, uh, Congolese hands because it would shorten their indentured service their indentured servitude terms. This led to, of course, even more mutilations and dismemberment 
um, though cutting off living hands was more rare um, than, than photos insinuate. Oftentimes when I teach this in class, many of the photos that I find or choose to use in class are of people that are still alive, just missing their hands. A lot of the time it's children. Um, although that does mislead people to think that this mutilation was just mutilation of labor for the sake of mutilating labor and to motivate them to work harder. More times than not, if there was a hand in a basket, it was off a dead person, not a living person. They were usually executed first and then the hand was removed. Leo, Leo reportedly cut off, or Leo reportedly, his quote essentially on this topic was cut off hands. That's idiotic. I'd cut off all the rest of them, but not hands. That's the one thing I need in the Congo. This was after accusations of what was going on already started to come out. He's essentially saying, I would never order off the cut, order the cutting off of hands. That makes no sense. I'm trying to, I'm trying to gather as much rubber as possible and I need their hands for that. This was of course his defense. And I suppose it's an defense that, that, that makes sense. Um, I guess if, if you're being asked, why are there so many hands appearing in this now, this, this as, as currency, within this economy because other Europeans would show up, right? Missionaries are there that are perhaps like I would say genuine missionaries there to, to, to save souls or whatever they're trying to accomplish. They're seeing this and they're going to start asking questions. And that's his response. Um, it's also during this period of time under Leo's watch that we have the creation of child colonies in the Congo because there were so many orphans. Well, this is obvious. Death and destruction are rampant. You have obviously mass executions taking place. You have mutilation. You have people dying of exhaustion because of labor. You have mass famines. You have entire villages being burned. There are so many lives being lost. You're creating obviously a lot of orphans that are going to be survivors. Leopold also sanctioned the kidnapping of many children and sending them against their will to Catholic, to Catholic schools. And when they were in these schools, they would only give them two choices of, of the type of education they would receive. They would either learn how to be laborers or they would learn how to be soldiers. And these were the only schools funded by the Congo Free State. And I must stress that this whole enterprise back in the 1880s, when, when Leo's trying to sell this to the uh, 14 other countries at the Berlin Conference, that he's going to civilize and educate and make things better. But by the time we get to this period in the 1890s, the only schools funded by the state are turning the Congolese into either slaves or slave soldiers. What are your thoughts there? I mean, there's a direct parallel, I think, to the Indian boarding schools that we see in the United States. The other thing that I think we need to make a connection to in this specific topic is one of the things that the West likes to vilify many African warlords for is using child soldiers as if that was an African invention. I must stress right here is the idea that colonialism actually introduced the idea of the child soldier to the African continent, not Africa itself. And I want to stress that because again, it's constantly vilified. We we talk about it with what was it? The, the Coney thing back in, when was that? 2012, 2013, 2021? I don't remember when it was, but we, we, we emphasize it here and we use it as a way through our lens to judge, and we still do this, either the need, the empathetic need to re-imperialize Africa so that we can bring them up to our state, state and standards and so on and so forth, or to vilify it. But in reality, it is a Western introduction to the continent. 50% of these kids that end up in these Catholic boarding schools end up dying of disease and forced marches that they were forced to that, that forced marches that they were forced to go on. Of course they were forced to go on. These forced marches um, into remote districts for more exploratory purposes. Half of them die. Speaking of disease, the other thing that is going to be a major killer of, of Congolese at this point in time is disease. Because again, you introduce these horrible conditions, you're burning villages down, you're causing famines you're working people literally to death. This is ripe. This is a ripe area where many, where a pandemic is going to hit. 
Okay. Um, and we see this in other colonial case studies as well, right? Disease becomes a major, major player in the destruction of an indigenous population. The major killer in the Congo was something called sleeping sickness, but there were also uh, additional bouts of smallpox, dysentery, even syphilis and gonorrhea. And I must stress, this isn't like the cute version of syphilis and gonorrhea that you can go um, to a clinic for and get cured. They didn't have that in the Congo at this moment in time. Syphilis and gonorrhea were at times, especially in a jungle in the middle of nowhere, a death sentence, believe it or not. And I, I use those two as a specific example to reveal that what else was going on in the Congo? Sexual predation by the Belgians. Um, there actually was also um, a bout of swine flu that was going on at the time that also caused a number of people uh, to die. In fact, in 1901 alone, at least on Belgian records, we have a we have on 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 count or on record 500,000 deaths by disease alone in 1901. 500,000 Congolese die in 1901 alone just from diseases. This isn't from the mutilations. This isn't from the village burnings. This isn't from 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 the executions. This is from disease. So, what does what does the world do while this is happening? What does the world do? Well, we'll actually give the world a little bit more credit than we would in other colonial enterprises, even later colonial enterprises where people turn a blind eye to the executions taking place in Kenya as late as the 1950s. But in this case, the world cares. And, 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 I, and I'm not going to ask this question of Nick yet, but I am curious as to why the world cares at this specific point in time and not for the countless other colonial enterprises that are going on between basically the 1400s and the 20th century, right? They, but they care about this one. So I will give some people some credit here. Let's talk about it. Word gets out and an investigation will eventually ensue. Why does an investigation even occur? Well, actually, it's, it's cash rules everything around me. It's money. Despite the profits, profitability of rubber because of the uh, invention and then um, proliferation of the automobile, Leo's debts persisted. He was spending like a madman on, on lavish colonial projects, both in the Congo and back in Belgium. Um, that's why he's known as the Builder King. A lot of this money was going right back into this idea of showing off my prestige, peacocking about how awesome I am as a king and how great the Belgians are. Um, competitors from other colonies uh, also begin to cut into Leo's profits, i.e. rubber is starting to be cultivated in other parts of the world. A good example is Southeast Asia under French colonial rule in what we call French Indochina, um, Vietnam specifically. Um, there are competitors that are starting to cut into Leo's more or less monopoly on rubber production, which, which is going to cut into his profit margins as well. There's also, of course, the unsustainable colonial policies I just got done talking about for the last 20, 30 minutes. It's, it's unsustainable to continue to kill your workforce at these levels, right? And to cultivate more rubber than can be reproduced by the natural environment. This led to some more international scrutiny on what was going on in Belgium. And some of the very missionaries that Leopold had used as a cover for his economic exploitation of the region began to turn on him. Even they could not turn, they couldn't understand what was going on, the, the wild abuses. And many of them have been missionaries on other colonial projects that had abuses. But what we're saying here is that the abuses of the Belgians in the Congo were so grotesque that even these missionaries started to turn on him. 
an example of, of people beginning to investigate what was going on actually are a couple of uh, USers we'll talk about here. Um, a Colonel George Washington Williams, he was actually a colonel in the Union Army dating back to the Civil War himself, um, had started a black-run newspaper in Washington, D.C. known as The Commoner. Um, he later also started another another famous newspaper in Cincinnati, well, I wouldn't say famous, but another newspaper in Cincinnati, and he himself became a historian. He probably deserves more of a bio here um, as a uh, as a very important USer that was fighting for abolition and so on and so forth, um, but maybe we'll save that for the Myth is America series if we ever bring that back. Regardless, he ends up for his newspaper interviewing Leopold. And then he decided, hey, maybe I should fact check what Leopold is saying about his colonial project in the Belgium. And when he does some fact checking and and does some 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 snooping around, he is he he is absolutely shocked at the horrors of what is going on in the Belgian Congo. His findings would eventually be published in the New York Times itself. Um, unfortunately, as with many quote unquote whistleblowers, especially in the United States. Um, which has a very rich and detailed history of rampant racism, which we've gone through over and over again in numerous episodes. Um, whites in the U.S. unleashed a complete defamation campaign of Colonel George Washington Williams. And again, I must stress, this is this guy's a Civil War hero, right? A U.S. Civil War hero, and they do everything everything they can to defamate his character, accusing him of adultery and corruption within the army and so on and so forth. They go out of their way to make this person look like like essentially a liar. And then in January of 1908, another example of this taking place in the United States is a man named William Henry Shepard. He published his report on the colonial abuses in the American Presbyterian Congo Mission, which was a newsletter. He himself was a missionary. Excuse me. Once he publishes his findings in the newsletter for his missionary work, he ends up being sued for libel against specifically the Kasai Rubber Company, um, which is important. He eventually, like the charges are, he's going to beat the charges. But the fact that he goes through this whole process, it ruins his name. Um, it costs him a vast amount of time and money and resources to eventually beat these charges. But the fact that he's being sued for libel against the Kasai Rubber Company is absolutely absurd. These two examples are just within the United States for a project that's actually Belgian. But it's super interesting that these whistleblowers were there. Is there anything you'd like to add? Because again, this is a history of the Belgians in the Congo for a predominantly U.S. audience. I thought it was important to include these two whistleblowers. Anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important to know, like the, like you said, this is unique compared to a lot of the other colonial processes we've discussed where like people actually cared once they figured out what was going on here. You know what I mean? I should say that these are people of color that are there that are the whistleblowers, mm-hmm. of course, but they're not going to be the only ones. And I must stress, like I said, they're going to face repercussions, not even wholly from the Belgians, but from, again, whites here in the United States, um, which, again, probably deserves commentary in a separate episode regarding Myth is America. So back to this, though, this is the onset of what many people call propaganda wars specific to the Congo Free State. So this period in the Congo Free State's history is known as like the propaganda period. And the most famous part of this propaganda period is actually a work of fiction. It is Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness, published in 1899. It is also at this point now um, open source. You can find it anywhere. Um, No copyright issues. You can read the whole thing. It is a work of fiction, though. It was released originally in a series of three uh, novellas um, in the Blackwoods magazine, and it is a watershed moment in anti-imperial writing. I must stress, even though it is a work of fiction, Joseph Conrad wrote it based on his own experience as a steamer along 
uh, the Congo. And when I say a steamer, he's running the boats along the Congo River and, and he's living this experience. Missionaries, resources, all of these things. He's seeing them go back and forth. Um, he's seeing the abuses. He's seeing, I'm willing to bet as a steamer, he saw baskets full of hands and I'm sure he saw baskets full of ammunitions and, and they were probably counting, make sure that it all works uh, works out and there is an equivalency. Things along those lines, these are where his experience comes into play. Um, the most famous quote that kind of colors this from the heart of darkness, I think it's a very good one. Um, and again, it is a work of fiction, so this is not necessarily like a primary source per se, but it comes from a primary source. I mean, he was, he was there, right? Joseph Congress. He sat, he has this to say, the conquest of the earth, which mostly means the taking it away from those who have a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves is not a very pretty thing when you look into it too much. What redeems it is the idea only, an idea that back of it, not a sentimental pretense, but an idea and an unselfish belief in the idea, something you can set up and bow down before and offer a sacrifice to. It's a very powerful quote, right? It's basically a saying the conquest of the worth is is based on this like romanticized idea. But it's not very pretty when you look at what you have to do for it. And the important part, I think the end, the ending of that quote is that offer a sacrifice to. Well, in this case, what's that sacrifice? It is the Congolese people. Right. The most famous person from this era, whistleblower, I will say, that gets most of the credit. I don't, I don't want to say that credit's undue. It, it, he, 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 deserve, he deserves this credit. Is a man named um, Edmund Morrill. Uh, he lived between 1873 and 1924. He was a shipping clerk, uh, essentially turned human rights advocate. He worked at a shipping shipping company called Elder Dempster. He's the one that began to raise red flags at the shipping company. Essentially, what he was seeing at the shipping company is that guns keep going out and natural resources keep going in. And he's like, that's a weird exchange. Guns for ivory, guns for rubber. What's going on? And it made him curious and he began to do some research. Um, as he began to do some research, uh, he began to write. And it is this writing that he turned into a publication famously known as the West African Mail. It essentially was a compilation of his findings, his political views or polemics, um, various cartoons that he would commission, and the letters of missionaries that he eventually was able to compile. He would obviously get in contact with missionaries, get their letters, publish them. Um, many of these letters revealed a whole host of the abuses that were going on in the Congo Free State. One of the more famous things that he wrote in 1903 in this West African mail was, and I quote, blood is smeared all over the Congo state. Its history is bloodstained. Its deeds are bloody. The edifice uh, it, it has reared is cemented in blood. The blood of unfortunate Negroes spilled freely with the most sordid of all motives, monetary gain. He also um, eventually moved on to actual pamphleteering, um, which was some of his most important and famous works. The most famous pamphlet, again, is open source. You can Google it. It's called the Congo Slave State. And again, you Google Congo Slave State by Edmund Morrill. You can read the whole thing. But pamphleteering is interesting. We've done a, a lot on pamphleteering when we talked about the U.S. War for Independence and the French Revolution. I guess I'd like to ask Nick one more time why, if you, again, we would argue this is somewhat of a social movement. He's trying to form. Why is pamphleteering important for social movements? Back easy, then. Yeah. It's easy to distribute, right? And easy to create and easily readable by almost all audiences that are at least somewhat literate, right? I mean, it was social media of the era, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term, right? This is how you spread a message relatively quickly. Yeah. Um, he also wrote books. His most famous full book, again, open source. You can find it for free online. It was published in 1906. It was called Red Rubber. Red Rubber, obviously, for the fact that 
rubber is the reason for so much blood, all the blood he talked about in that quote I just went over. Um, all of his findings, all of the publications, all of the campaigning that he did, and he he put in the work, we should give this individual some credit, led finally to the British, he's British, um, um, members of parliament to begin to call for a review of the Berlin conference itself. Because Britain was part of that conference and they're like, hey, these are clear violations of something we all signed on to back in 1884 and 1885. And as members of parliament here in England, we should actually have a say-so in what's going on. And so they called for a review, and that review became a very famous report um, published in 1904 called the Casement Report, also open source. Also, you can find all of it online um, for free. This would be assigned by British members of parliament to investigate um, moral. Not necessarily Leo at first, Morrill's assertions. And of course, it's performed by a man named Roger Casement. That's where it gets its name from. And he immediately found that all of Morrill's allegations and all of his compilation of sources and things were absolutely true. And so Roger Casement and um, Edmund Morrill form a relationship from this. Originally, it meant to investigate um, Morrill, ends up creating this friendship. And this friendship leads to the creation of the Congo Reform Association. The Congo Reform Association then set to, of course, well, I mean, it's in the name, reform what was going on in the Congo and perhaps challenge the existence of of the Congo Free State itself. Copies of the casement report were sent from England to Belgian Parliament in Brussels. Morrill goes on to campaign throughout the United States and attracts a a kind of like a, a who's who of 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 early, we would argue, before it was popular, civil rights advocates at the time, which is interesting. But again, I always find it interesting that these campaigners are looking at the U.S., which again is not really a world power yet as a place that could advocate for some sort of change. Again, that's just, it's super interesting to me because as, as somebody that you know, obviously lives here and teaches here and has gone through U.S. history over and over again, U.S. has already has a wildly bloody past of its own by the early 1900s. Why look to the U.S.? I, 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 any thoughts? Like, are you, I'm, I struggle with this, but maybe it's my inherent bias of, of, of being, well, anti-slavery and anti-ethnic cleansing of Native Americans and so on and so forth. But like, <laughs> I, I mean, for obvious reasons, but like, why? I guess why are other people around the world still, I mean, maybe they're under like the ethically constitutive story themselves of this land of freedom and opportunity. And maybe they don't know the true history of the U.S. themselves. Do you think well, that's Well, they also it? probably weren't going to get much sympathy from any of the other countries that were... In Africa. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, regardless, um, Booker T. Washington, famous, famous for the Tuskegee Institute, all of the things we've, we've talked about Booker T. on this on this podcast before, uh, W.E.B. Uh, du Bois, and Mark Twain himself, uh, I mean, uh, who's who, a very important civil rights advocates, um, at least for the uh, turn of the 19th and 20th century, or turn of the 19th century into the 20th century, um, they are attracted and become part of the Congo Reform Association, um, which is important, and they even start a U.S. branch. Um, there's an interesting quote that, that, that kind of compiles all of this era of the Congo Reform Association. And I quote, the errand which has brought to me to the United, which has brought me to the United States is a very simple one. It is to appeal to you on behalf of the oppressed and persecuted peoples of the Congo, for whose present unhappy condition you in America and we in England have a great moral responsibility from which we cannot escape and from which honor in honor we should not attempt to escape. 
It is my privilege to ask you who are met here in the cause of peace, whether you will not lead a helping hand in in staying the cruel and destructive wars, if the murder of helpless men and women can be dignified by such a name. In appealing to you on behalf of those millions of helpless Africans, it is a great responsibility that you have. If our duty is clear, surely yours is also clear. The African slave trade has been revived and is in full swing in the Congo today. I ask you to help us to root it up and fling it out of Africa. And just as I have no doubt of the greatness and loftiness of your ideals, so I have no doubt of what your answer will be. So Morrill in his campaign, again, appealing to the Booker T. Washingtons and W.E.B. Du Bois of the world is, I mean, this, this is an important part of the speech. And while I want to essentially honor the cause that he is fighting for, the way in which he's going about it is, Interesting. Again, he starts with the appeal to U.S. and U.K. morality, which U.K. morality for an anti-colonial project? The U.K. is legion for being the worst of the worst of colonizers. But I guess that's not the point of what he's trying to do. He doesn't want to dig into the reality of history. He wants to appeal to the illusion of what the UK in in theory stands for. And the same thing with the United States. It's not that he's not aware there was a civil war, and I'm assuming he had to be vaguely aware of Native American genocide. He's not appealing, I guess, to that. He's saying there's now a moral responsibility based on who we are as Americans or Brits to do something. I I, I don't know why. Well, and also, like, the powers that be in both of these countries, this provides them with a chance to you know, sort of alleviate the atrocities that they have done in the past. Uh, and I guess they're still doing, but right. I, like I can see it. I can see it. That's fair. I can see it. The other part that I have a problem with, with morals approach here. And again, I don't want to take anything away because maybe nothing changes and lives are lost because he doesn't do this, but I, I still feel compelled to mention helpless Africans like removing agency from them. Like essentially that was that, 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 that Africans themselves cannot absolve themselves of the situation that we need, um, in this case, Americans and Brits to come help them in this regard, which always leaves the door open for a different shade of colonialism to happen later. That's, that's my biggest problem, removing the agency mm-hmm. of the Africans themselves. There are resistance movements going on in the Congo at this moment in time. I'll probably talk about them here in just a minute, but like that, that's important for us to understand this idea that it's just a different way of sending more and more people of non-Congolese descent to the Congo to help, which is a form of colonial practice as well. The white white savior, right? Yes, the white savior, essentially. Um, Anyway, Leo is, is, Leopold is not unaware that this is going on. He, he, he bites back with his own propaganda campaign. Um, but essentially few people were going to be empathetic to Leopold, um, at this point, because the evidence at this point is overwhelming, especially when British parliament's involved at this point, when his own parliament in Brussels is involved. Um, the only people that were really backing Leopold's, uh, Congo free state by the time we get to 1905, 1906, 1907 are again, people that are just wildly racist for various reasons um, from both North America and Europe itself, or the corporations that are benefiting from, of course, extracting resource and labor from the Congo. Those were the only ones that were like part of the Leo propaganda campaign at this point. 
under pressure from his own parliament, as well as the British parliament, um, as well as the United States government itself, he initiates a commission to self-investigate the allegations against him. So he's going to create his own little commission and investigate himself. Now, in many cases, this goes wrong. I mean, my favorite examples are like modern police departments investigating their own like accusations against it. Like, but in this case, it's actually these people had, I would argue, a little bit of an ethical backbone in this case because the investigation finds all of the fi- finds what all of the accusations of moral encasement and so on and so forth to be valid. They release something called the evidence laid before the Congo Commission of Inquiry, and it substantiates the accusations against Leopold. It calls Leopold out, and it ends up being published globally. How rare is that? What do you? I, I want your thoughts on that. I was thinking this earlier when we were talking about the UK and the US and like how clearly, clearly the evidence was insurmountable for them to even get involved, right? It's not like they were good. The US and UK governments were going to get involved and sort of give their backing to this movement before they were 100% sure that this was what was really going on, right? So I think that, you know, yes, this group that's investigating Leo here has an ethical backbone, but also I think it just points to the fact that the evidence was so strong and overwhelming that like they couldn't even if they tried to sweep it under the rug, right? Like it was just impossible. They had nothing, no option but to publicly, you know, call him out. Absolutely. Um, oh, I will say too, one interesting point is that it might have been a bit strategic because it places the blame almost solely on Leopold as like the figurehead that is behind this entire thing, right? So it absolves a lot of, you know, the thousands of other people that were involved in various layers of this entire operation. Absolutely. Um, and, He's the and, fall and guy, that- right? That's essentially where we're going to go with this. Eventually, um, it is decided by uh, by Belgian by, by by Parliament in Brussels that the Free State will be annexed by the government of Belgium and taken from Leopold II in 1908. So they essentially take every the Congo Free State, and it, it's it's taken from him as a property. He's actually financially compensated just a little bit, but it's actually taken from him and becomes a property of of Belgium. Um, the, the country of Belgium. And that's when we go from actually calling it the Congo Free State to um, um, the Belgian Congo. Like that's when that official quote unquote name change takes place is in 1908. When this happens to Leo, Leopold, he destroys as many records as possible. Like I said, he was, he was financially compensated just a little bit. I personally did not do the research to find out how much that financial compensation was. Um, I don't know that it matters because eventually he dies just one year later after, after the Free State is taken from him. Um, and he never faced any repercussions or charges for the the, the horrors there. And in, in the name of horrors, at this point in time, I usually say um, um, when I talk about uh, casualties that there are new, numerous sources and things along this, I'm not going to bother with the Congo Free State. I am going with the number of 10 million. 10 million Congolese passed away between at least 1885 and 1960. You're like, well, why are we talking about 1960? Well, I'll get to that in just a second in an addendum here. We basically, I, I basically to wrap the story up, I'm going to go, well, what happens from, from this point on? But that is a long period of time, but 10 million lives lost. I mean, some might argue that number's bigger than the Holocaust, right? This is a huge, huge loss of life in the Congo in the name, of course, uh, of prestige and profit. Really nothing else at this point in time. Okay. Now, as far as what the Belgian Congo looks like without Leopold running the show, and now that it's more of a government venture, 
unfortunately, not a lot of things change. I mean, some of the abuses um, um, end up going down just a little bit, but like the systems in place are already there, right? There is already exploitation of labor. Many of these villages that were burned down, many of the crops, all of the, all of the, the way of life is forever gone. The way of life is forever gone. And so the people of the Congo are going to suffer. Diseases are still being spread, right? Crops are still not growing. The demographic, I just, I, I just used the number, 10 million deaths. Like the demographic change is going to cause a whole host of problems that the Congo uh, is going to take decades to recover from. Under- well, and it's important to point out, which maybe you're getting to, but when the state of Belgium takes the Congo from Leopold's control, essentially, and t- turns it into the Belgian Congo, it's not as if colonization ended there, right? Yes. It just continued under the Belgian state instead of the king. Exactly. And, I mean, and, it was literally a, a colony of Belgium. A Belgium now, not just Leopold. Mm-hmm. And it operated under what they called, and I quote, the colonial trinity of state, missionary, and private company interests. Those are the three things that Belgium seeks to cultivate in, in the Congo. Bel- uh State interest, missionary interest, and private company interest. Nowhere in there do you hear Congolese interest, right? <laughs> right. So the colonial charter under that colonial trinity of interests is dictated by the Belgians. No Congolese, of course, are invited um, to decide what the new colonial charter will look like. The reforms in the colonial charter distribute power similarly to how Leopold said they were in the free state, but now they're just going to actually work, I suppose. There will be separation of powers and checks and balances and things along those lines. Um, and different officials, uh, different officials will be put into the districts, right? Because we would argue that some of the other officials were corrupt and we want to look good for the public, right? Unfortunately, the force publique is allowed to remain. Well, how have they been operated for the last decade and a half as right. just, I mean, almost like as a Gestapo of sorts. Um, and so, and, and, and a lot of their manpower does not change, right? So they're used to operating a certain way and they're still going to keep doing things um, almost business as usual. Now, um, flying through this part, this addendum part, and I will say this is mostly the, the addendum. The focus of this episode was the Congo Free State, but I do want to kind of wrap things up with, with what happens after Back-to-back world wars forced Belgium to further rely on the Congo for finances and even in certain cases safe refuge for for political or, or, or elite members of society, furthering the cultural, economic, and control and even forced assimilation of the Congolese people, right? Like, uh, you know, the main languages become French and Dutch and so on and so forth in the Congo. I think everybody knows that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on what was going on with the world wars. I think most people can, can understand that Belgium is, at least for European standards, was in a very difficult position in both world wars. And so... They became very, very reliant on their their sole big colony, the Congo, um, for basically everything, Um, which, again, just doubled down to Belgian control of the region. Um, There were also countless programs that would be unleashed on the Congolese people to basically program them into exploitative capitalist discourses under the auspices of once you eventually get your freedom, once once we eventually lead, this is how you achieve hope through these exploitative capitalist discourses. I mention this right now because this is being cultivated in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and to this day, we see these programs in place. The Congo is still struggling. There is rampant class stratification there. There are warlords there exploiting other people for natural resources. And in this case now, like the various minerals we use for electronics or our stupid freaking hybrid cars or whatever it is, like that's still happening. And it's merely the Congo using the model that they were conditioned under the Belgians. 
Like, I must stress this, like people look at that and we look down on these places for still having these systems in place. But we have to keep in mind, A, these countries are super young and B, it was the Europeans themselves that crafted the systems and the discourses around them to create the hegemony of exploitation. And we refuse to accept responsibility for that. Moreover, it is us that are consuming these resources. We're the ones consuming the resources um, from this exploitation. You wanted to add something there. It's such an important point that oftentimes the narrative is, you know, why can't the people of Africa like get their act together, right? There's, like you said, endless civil wars and exploitation and like blah, blah, blah. And like, you you know, the warlords and the, the pictures of the child soldiers and we have to stress that all of those things were imported to Africa by the whites. All of the systems, all of the guns, all of everything that is important to allowing those things to continue to function. I mean, their creation, their origins, and everything that allows them to continue to function to this day was created by the white colonizers. I, I can't stress that enough. 100%. And, and like I said, it's still the pro- we are still the consumers of that exploitation, right? Every time... One of us buys a, a laptop or an iPad or a Prius or a Xbox or whatever it is, a television. There is a good to there there is a good to fair chance that the minerals that make the chips and the wiring and whatever I don't know enough about technology, but it comes from the cobalt and lithium and so on and so forth in the Congo, specifically in the Congo. One of my favorite films. I'm going off topic here. I I don't know. It's five, six, seven, maybe even eight years old. No old at this point in time. Kind of covers this. It's Virunga. Now they do this film through the lens of trying to save mountain gorillas. So it's kind of like a a nature documentary at the same time, but it actually, once they realize they're there to like save mountain gorillas and and these companies are trying to exploit the land that the last mountain gorillas actually live on and so on and so forth. But once they dig further, it becomes bigger than the gorillas themselves. They begin to realize like, it's not just about the gorillas, it's the systems in place that, and this is never going to end, right? Like that's, I like that documentary. I highly recommend it. I think it's still on Netflix. It might not be, but Virunga. Okay. Um, okay. While not as pronounced as in South Africa, it's also during this period of time in the, in the early to mid 20th century that a type of apartheid, perhaps almost like a red line, like in the United States kind of thing takes place. So it's not as pronounced as in South Africa where like it's literal apartheid, but it's low key socioeconomic and cultural apartheid. It's social and economic division becomes imperative between Europeans, um, and the Congolese, especially in the big cities like Kinshasa. I mean, I should be calling it whatever it was under the Belgians, Leopoldville. Of course, it was called Leopoldville, but Kinshasa, right? Like like the, the, the capital. Um, like you see this apartheid type of state forming in the Belgian, uh, in, in, in Belgian Congo. Post-World War II anti-colonialism, though, is going to motivate some measures in the Congo, um, which is important. Again, without doing an entire history of the world after World War II, long story short, World War II proved a couple of things. A, Europeans were not more civilized than the rest of the world because they nearly killed each other twice, back-to-back world wars in the millions. Um, and, of course, their policies that they were using around the world to subjugate everyone else were drawn into critical inquiry. Long story short, a bunch of countries in the global south were like, you're all horrible and we're going to be independent now. We deserve to have nation states. Well, the Congo is also going to get somewhat caught up or sucked up into this, this, this uh, semi-nationalist discourse um, of, of liberation. 
there would be a few armed uprisings, um, but mostly most of the uh, uh, resistance in the Congo, in the Belgian Congo, would come in the forms of non-participation and other, quote unquote, more passive measures. I don't like the word passive because it makes makes the Congolese look like they're not there's not agency in the in the decisions they're making to intentionally not labor, to intentionally not pay taxes, to intentionally not participate by sending their kids to only Catholic schools, by not using the Catholic healthcare systems and things along those lines. That that those are active choices. I don't like the fact that that the sources I use that I, the sources I used on this were calling these passive measures. Um, and I don't know anything you want to chime in there with. Nope. Okay. Now, the other thing in post World War II world that's going to play a role is Belgium signed on to Article seventy three of the new United Nations Charter. The United Nations formed, of course, after World War II, which basically was like, "Hey, we, the countries of the United Nations, respect the rights of nation states to self determine. We respect self determination." Well, now all the other nation states of the United Nations are like, "So, you you going to do that in the Congo? Like, is that you're going to give them some self determination?" Even the United States and Soviet Union agreed on this one, and they applied pressure to Belgium, um, and they're like, "Hey, like." this type of colonization, the air is over. Like, I mean, look around you, like Kenya's doing its thing. India's doing its thing. Vietnam's fighting for independence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Although that gets uglier for both the U S and the Soviet union later, but regardless, like stop, stop what you're doing. Um, okay. Independence started. Independence was on the horizon for, for the Congo. Since essentially the 1940s, colonial some colonial officials in the Belgian had begun to groom a group of elite Congolese for possible independence, but they must show, these Congolese elites must show the acceptance of full-blown European assimilation. Most of the time they had to be Catholic. Um, these people were called, El I can't say it in French, Evolue? How would you pronounce that? No idea. Okay. Anyway. They had to apply to become part of this elite class. They had to uh, pass certain tests. They succumbed to constant house calls, basically investigations by Belgian officials to see that these Congolese are now acting Belgian enough. Basically, they had to prove their worthiness to run essentially a country based on the Belgian understanding of what worthy was. The Belgian king at this time, because they're still a constitutional monarchy, he doesn't have nearly as much power as back in the day with Leopold, but this dude named uh, Baudouin, he visits in 1955 to vast celebrations by all to include the Congolese. So you can see that the narrative, even in the Congo, had changed. One of the things that this introduces is a question, though. Did paternalism of the Belgian Congo work? Why would the Congolese now celebrate a king, which is a position that had led to the deaths of millions prior to this? Is this something that we should celebrate, that maybe the assimilation program worked a little too well over the past couple of decades? I don't know. Anyway... Certain movements began to simmer in the 1940s, 1950s, and, and, and almost into 1960 around a fully united Congo with the right to self-determination. I haven't talked about it to this point, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now, but the Congo was actually two parts, the Belgian Congo and the French Congo during the colonial process. They are also, to this day, two separate nation states, actually, um, Republic of Congo and Democratic Republic of Congo, as, as they're currently called. But the idea at this time was to actually have one unified Congo. Now, needless to say, I just I just spoiled it. That, that movement never comes to fruition, but people had begun to talk about it. Another important thing takes place at this point in time based on what we've what we've we've talked about in other episodes especially in Kenya political parties form 
um, all Congolese political parties. One of those is called the Abaco, which is basically an organization for the cultural preservation of certain parts of the Congo. Their leader, a man named Joseph Kasa Vubu, rises to prominence as an anti-colonial leader. Um, and it's important. Part of his motivation for creating this political party and being its main leader is that independence had been achieved in neighboring countries of Uganda, even the French Congo, which drew into critical inquiry Belgium um, and their plan to slowly give the Congolese independence over 30 years. I mean, under that plan, the Congo might not have been independent until like the 1980s or 1990s, right? There's also rival political parties that are formed. The most famous, and I must mention it before we we kind of wrap this episode up, um, the most famous is the MNC, uh, or the Movement National um, of the Congolese, which is basically uh, a a nationalist movement. Yes, it is a nationalist movement um, that is very left-leaning. It is a Marxist national movement, and it is led by a man named Patrice Lumumba, very famous. Um, It's created in 1956. This movement actually had a lot of traction and the history of the Congo would be forever different. I have no doubt about that if this movement were allowed to um, proliferate during that period of time. But the fact that it had Marxist leanings concerned the West, right? Concerned the Belgians, concerned the Brits. And of course, this is during the Cold War and the Truman Doctrine, so concerned the Americans as well. Riots break out um, uh, in 1959, in January of 1959, and that accelerates the Belgians' need to uh, grant the Congo its independence. Hundreds of people die in these riots um, in Kinshasa, specifically at an Abaco rally. The Congolese, um, in protest to people dying at this riot, usually under oppression by the Belgian uh, colonial officials or colonial enforcing um, group at this point, um, the FPs, I should just call them what I've been calling them the whole episode, regardless... They begin to protest. They decide they're not going to pay their taxes for the next year. They're basically on strike for the next year, and they are now publicly disrespecting Belgian colonial officials, which is something that was like just unheard of a few decades before, right? Just public disrespect, disregard for all orders, disregard for all law, disregard for all laws. It's, I mean, the Belgians called it anarchy. I probably wouldn't call it anarchy, but the Belgians were worried that this was like their version of anarchy, essentially, at this moment in time. So an emergency meeting is called in Brussels with the Congolese elites that had been groomed, more or less, since the 40s to take over. Even Lumumba is allowed out of prison to attend this meeting. And elections were planned with at least five Congolese political parties vying for varied positions in in what was going to be a very liberalist republic type of organization. Um... It is the Abaco representative, Joseph Casa Vubu, that eventually wins the executive branch. Um, however, Patrice Lumumba from the MNC does win um, the seat to be the prime minister. On June 30th of 1960, independence of the, uh, of the Congo is declared, but it's really nothing to celebrate as the divide and rule strategy of the Belgian Congo led to a almost immediate civil war. Lumumba himself would be arrested and executed in Katanga, in the Katanga region, which is a far eastern region, so there would be less eyes on what was taking place. He's going to be executed one year after becoming basically the prime minister, not even one year, months after becoming the prime minister. And he is caught and executed with the help of Belgian forces and possibly the CIA as well. Although it hasn't been substantiated, it would not surprise me. Um, why execute the prime minister of this brand new baby country? Well, it's again during the Cold War and the fact that he had leftist leanings, 
I mean, do the math. Um, and again, in 2002, uh, Belgium, the country of Belgium, formally apologized to the people of the Congo for the execution of Lumumba. Um, but what does that apology mean? Why is that even a thing? What if Patrice Lumumba had lived? Would the Belgian Congo be in, in its current state? I, I, I don't know. Any thoughts? Nope. Don't know. Okay. During this period in 1960, 80,000 Belgians end up being evacuated, in, uh, including the force public. UN peacekeepers are then brought in, um, and they become a constant presence in, and again, this very conflicted region of the world that's been conflicted since essentially 1960. Um, eventually, a military coup takes place in 1965 under Mobutu. He's super famous. Everyone knows the Mobutu uh, seizure of power in 1965. Don't have to go into detail. Um, one of the reasons that the coup is successful um, by Joseph Mobutu is he has Western support. He is a far-right nationalist that promised no matter what he does, he will be anti-communist. So yes, all of the things that go with far-right dictators um, come with Mobutu. Human rights violations, rampant corruption, rampant socioeconomic inequality, and the US, the UK, basically all of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization are like, cool. The Congolese people will suffer as long as we don't have to deal with any form of socialist ideology in the Congo. Um, he also renames the country briefly. Um, those of us that are old, like me, remember when it was called Zaire. It was, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't born all the way back then, but I remember it was called Zaire until 1997. So from 1971 to 1997, he calls the country Zaire, and you'll see on U.S. maps and stuff, or U.S. maps, all maps around the world, Zaire. Anyway, Mobutu himself would finally be removed in 1997, ushering in back-to-back -back leadership by the Kabilas um, and the creation of what we now call the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but as we've already alluded to numerous times, problems persist, and these problems, every single one of these problems, are not indigenous to Africa or the Congo. I must stress, they can all be traced back to the Congo Free State. Thanks for listening or watching. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. I am Nick. Jared. Later.